Hey, who likes movies? Yeah, I think most people like movies, most pe people. I went and saw the, uh, the latest Harrison Ford film, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, a couple of weeks ago. Has anybody seen that? A few? Yeah, a couple of people. It didn't do very well at the box office, apparently. It got, it got caned, I think. It was a bit, some people thought it was a bit lame, or other movies came out that took all the, all the box office takings. I'm not sure, but I liked it. I thought it was great. I like Indiana Jones, and, uh, you know, he, he, there was all the typical stuff that you would expect. There was... Um, you know, there was fights and there was chases and there was hectic stuff going on and there was this baddies and there was goodies and eventually the baddies got what was coming to them and, and Indiana Jones gets the girl at the end and it was what you would expect from a hero movie. I liked it. Um, and a couple of weeks later then the latest Mission Impossible movie came out and that's got another hero, Ethan. Uh, Ethan Hunt, that's right, another hero. You obviously went and saw it. Did you? <laughs> yeah, so we, we like hero movies, don't we? We like anything to do with heroes. Usually it tends to draw something in from us. We, we tend to be attracted to them. And there's a whole massive movie industry based on superheroes, isn't there? Like you've got the, the Marvel characters and you've got Superman, Captain America, Spider-Man, blah, 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 blah. Like there's an endless list of superheroes that, um, that generate stories and movies and magazines and comics. But there's also regular human heroes that we, we have stories about as well. People like Indiana Jones, and we've got Mad Max. He's just, he hasn't, hasn't got any superpowers, but he's a hero. Sherlock Holmes, James Bond, The Lone Ranger, the list goes on. Lots of just regular human heroes that we have stories about. But we also have everyday heroes like the police and the fireys and the ambos and um, people in the military, people who do courageous things that aren't in the movies, they're just everyday heroes. And you, they even go to another level again when they're volunteers, don't they? Like the SES workers and, and uh, the rural fire service guys and all of those. There's something about heroes that captures our imagination. There is something in us that, that wants to work, well worship is what I'm leading to, but there's something about heroes that makes us want to admire someone who's, who um, puts themselves out for other people, who steps in and solves a problem that people can't solve for themselves and does it at their own risk. Heroes, we love heroes, mostly, mostly. What happens when your hero fails? What happens when um, Superman meets Kryptonite? What happens when, you know, the Me Too movement brings up a lot of celebrities that we've loved who suddenly find themselves in jail for things that they've done? What happens when your football hero does something stupid and finds himself suspended for however many matches, time after time? What happens when, you know, you're a little boy who has a dad who's your hero and you grow up and he fails you in some way? When our heroes fail us, there is something crushing about that. There's something very disappointing about having our heroes fail us. And I don't think we need another hero. We need a better hero. Not just another one. We need someone that we can, that we can talk up, that we can praise, that we can admire. And some, someone that we, can do, that we can admire with some confidence that they're not going to one day turn out to be the villain of the piece. How on earth do we avoid that this, this kind of disappointment when a hero lets us down? Because... All of these heroes in our movies have got the capacity to let us down. They're all fallible. Whether they're real-life heroes or whether they're fictional, they've all got a weakness. They've all got the ability to fail. 
That's actually partly what makes them so compelling in movies. But we need a hero that is not going to let us down. And the passage we're looking at today is going to point us in the right direction about that. We're, we're continuing a series in the Psalms. Today we're looking at Psalm 98. And this Psalm touches on this built-in desire that we have to worship, to admire someone, something bigger than ourselves. There is this, this part of us that is built to pour ourselves out for someone else who is greater than us, to admire someone who's greater than us. And this psalm is going, as we go through it, we're going to see, it's talking about praising God and worshipping God who is greater than us. This is really the only place we ought to be putting our, our worship and our admiration. And it's going to talk about why God is the only one that should get our praise. It's going to talk about how he wants us to praise him or give us one way of praising him. And it's also going to talk about who he's talking to when he says praise the Lord, who is included in that. So that's what we're going to look at, why we should praise God, how we can praise him, who should do the praising. And uh, if we can sort of learn to think about things the way the psalmist tells us to, we won't need to face that crushing disappointment that we were talking about. So let me pray and then uh, we'll read the passage. Father, thank you that uh, you understand how we're made because you made us. You understand that we have this part of us that is, we are built to worship. We are built to pour out admiration for things that we think are impressive that we think are greater than us. And we also are susceptible to worship things that will let us down. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we take a closer look at your word this morning in this psalm, even though it's, it says things that so many of the other psalms say, that you will speak to us this morning and help us to see why it's important that we worship you and, um, and how we can avoid that crushing disappointment of placing our hope in the wrong things. We pray that you will speak to us, Holy Spirit, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Psalm 98, it's only nine verses. It's pretty short and sweet. Let's, let's read that through together. I'm reading from, I think this is the NIV. I haven't got it written there, but I'm pretty sure it is. Starting at verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. So there you have it, short and sweet. And it says pretty much the same things that a lot of other Psalms say too. And it's almost like you could read through this and go, yeah, 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 I've heard all this before, blah, 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 blah. Sing, praise, yeah, clap your hands, all that. Why on earth does God keep telling us to praise him? Why is it that we are told so often in the, in the Psalms particularly, over and over again, praise the Lord, sing to him, make a joyful noise? I mean, how would it sound if I left notes around everywhere saying, praise Steve, sing a song to Steve, sing a new song to Steve, tell of all the great things he's done? You would think there was something seriously wrong with me and you, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me, in fact. Why does God do this? What, is he on some sort of ego trip? Like, is he so insecure that he needs all these little people praising him all the time? No. 
He knows that we are so insecure that we need to be reminded of how fantastic he is. That's why he reminds us to praise him all the time. Did you notice what it says in verse 3? Verse 3 says, He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. You see, God's not the one that forgets. It's us that forgets what's going on, what, what God's on about and what this relationship should be like. God remembers. And it's not like, it's not like he's up there about to smite and smash and destroy the world and thinks, oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, that's right. I love these people. I've got to remember that. I must remember. Try not to forget to love these people. No. God constantly remembers. He is constantly aware of the relationship, particularly with his people, that he has committed himself to. It's a covenant relationship and God has bound himself to love his people. He doesn't forget. We're the ones that forget. We're the ones that are easily distracted by the things all around us that we admire. The superheroes, the not-so-superheroes, the pretty shiny things in this world. We are distracted very, very easily. And the problem is, because we are hardwired to worship things that we admire, we end up admiring and worshipping all the wrong things. And we're all susceptible to that. We're all prone to do that. We all can find ourselves worshipping, pouring ourselves out to things that are admirable, things that are greater than us, things that are amazing, like there's amazing artworks, there's amazing music, there's amazing skills that people have, and we can easily look at them and think, wow, that's fantastic. But we have a tendency to go further than that and worship. And that's where the problem lies. We end up worshipping anything but the God who made us. So the Psalms keep reminding us of who we belong to. That's why we're told to praise the Lord all the time. God remembers the relationship and we need to remember the relationship. That's why the Psalm opens with the words, sing a new song to the Lord, not to your favourite celebrity, not to your favourite football team, not to your possessions, not to the pretty shiny things in this world. Sing a new song to the Lord because he has done marvellous things. He's the one that does marvellous things. Everybody, maybe a lot of other people have done marvellous things too. But gods are in a class of their own. The psalmist here is reminding the Israelites, because he's, he's writing to the Jewish nation, right? He's reminding the Israelites of all the, all the amazing things that he's done in their history. The rescue from Egypt, from slavery, and the, and the parting of the Red Sea, and guiding them into the Promised Land. All of those things are part of the history and he's reminding them of this amazing salvation that he has brought to them as a nation. But as Christians, we've got more impressive stuff than that to remember. We can remember that Jesus, that God stepped into human history and died. Just get your head around that for a second. <laughs> the God who created the universe became subject to the universe and died. He became killable. And then he rose again. The, the story that we believe as Christians is so much more amazing, so much more praiseworthy than, than even what the psalmist had in mind. So much more than any celebrity you could name, as fantastic as they might be. We need to be reminded that God is the only one who deserves our worship. In fact, he is the only safe place for us to put our worship. I want to quote something from a guy, you'll probably, probably recognise this guy's face, Russell Brand. Um, he's a comedian, he's a commentator, kind of a, a bit of a presence online, um, has a lot to say about a whole lot of different things. He's not a Christian and you would never mistake him for a Christian, okay? So I'm not saying let's listen to everything he says and believe it, 
But he's got a point here. Let me read what he says. I found this online a couple of weeks ago. He said, when it says in the Old Testament, worship no other gods than me, the implication is that we are a species that worships. And if you do not worship the divine, you will worship the profane. You will worship your own identity. You will worship your belongings. You will worship the template laid down for you by a culture that gets you distracted. That's, these were his words. Now, if somebody like Russell Brand can see that, we ought to be able to see that. We should be keenly aware of the danger that we are in of worshipping the wrong things. The propensity that we have to give our worship to something that doesn't deserve it. God is the only safe place for us to put our worship. Only when we worship our Creator can we be sure that we're not worshipping something that can be taken away or can have a moral failure or can wear out or can die. He's on a level all of his own. Every other person or thing that you could possibly admire was created by him. He made it all. He governs it all. He sees it all. And he acts for our good in ways that we could never do for ourselves, that no one else can do for us. So why does the psalm call us to sing a new song? Because he deserves it and because we need it. We need to be reminded. Let's be careful not to let other things or people take the place that God deserves in our hearts. That's number one. That's why we're called to praise. Now, how? The psalm also talks about how we can praise God. Did you notice how much it talks about music through that psalm? There's only a few short verses, but there's a lot of stuff in there about music. I think you know, six or five or six out of, the, out of the nine verses, at least half the psalm talks about singing. Verse 1, sing to, the joy, sing to the Lord a new song. Verse 4, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Verse 5, make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing. Verse 6, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Verse 8, let the rivers clap their hands and let the mountains sing together for joy. Verse 9, let them sing before the Lord. On and on and on it goes about music and singing. So much emphasis on music. You notice he doesn't say praise the Lord by having a Bible study or praise the Lord by writing a book about how great he is or praise the Lord by talking to your neighbour about how great he is. All of those things are good. I'm not saying don't do them. We should be doing some of those. Don't, uh, don't take that as the wrong meaning, but he wants to place the emphasis on music here today. You've got to remember that the Psalms is a hymn book. It was a Jewish hymn book. And so we need to realise that for a long time, like way, 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 way back, music and singing have been an important part of God's people getting together. It's important. Why is music so important? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, songs are memorable. I'm going to test you here. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, see, you can remember the correct words because it's memorable. Songs are memorable. That's one of the main reasons we use them is because our brains um, use the music as a framework to hang the words on so that we can remember them, we can recall them. It's almost like God designed us with that in mind, isn't it? I can still recall hymns that I haven't sung for decades. Like when I was a kid, 
Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I love that hymn. Haven't sung it for probably 25 years because nobody wants to sing hymns like that anymore. And I, that's all right. <laughs> okay. I don't mind that. But the, the, the power of the written word and the sung word is very, very strong because it gets into our heads and, and allows God to bring back those truths to us at times when we need to hear them. So they're memorable. Number two, songs are emotional. Music has the ability to tap into our emotions in a unique way. I found myself getting emotional in the singing this morning. God uses, our, uses music to get into our emotions. Why does he want to do that? Why doesn't he just want it to be flat, emotionless? Because he didn't make a bunch of robots. That's why. He doesn't want us to just do things by rote. He doesn't want us to just be machines. He wants our whole selves to be engaged with this process of praising him and responding to him. So this is not just a matter of ticking off religious boxes. This is a matter of interacting with the God who made us and these truths about him and, and absorbing them into ourselves. And our emotions lock those things away to us in, in, our, in our memories in a very deep way. Now... Having your emotions scratched like that, there's pros and cons to it. The pros are that it can lead us to take action. Emotions are a very strong motivator. So that when you feel God, well, we, we talk about God speaking to us in a song, and that's kind of what we're talking about, is when God, when God touches our emotions about a certain truth, it can lead us, and, and this will happen in sermons too, I mean, when you hear God speaking to you, it touches your emotions and it gives you a motivation to go and do something about it. Emotions can be, uh, can be motivating. That's great. The con that goes with emotions is that sometimes we can be after just an emotional experience and that's all. So we come to church, we listen to these great songs, we get emotional and we go home thinking that was great. That was church. I had a great time at church today because I got emotional. If that's all it is, then there's a problem. We can look for an emotional experience and nothing more. We can kid ourselves that we've had an encounter with God. Maybe we have, maybe we haven't. If you really have an encounter with God, it may or may not include emotions, but it will always lead you to be a little bit more like Jesus. That's the sign of whether you've had an encounter with God or not. If that doesn't happen, then the emotions may have only just been a distraction in some way. So be careful. Emotions are good, but they're only, they're only just part of the equation. They're not the end in itself. So they're memorable, they're emotional. And number three, songs are communal. We do it together. We can sing harmony together. You can't sing harmony with yourself. Um, not unless you've got a you know, multi-track recorder or something, but you can't, um, you can't do that on your own. Songs are communal. Did you notice in verse 3 it also said, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Our God. He's talking to the people of Israel as a group. This is a communal thing. It's a corporate thing. Songs can draw us together. There's fellowship involved when we sing together. These praises about the God who redeemed us. Reminding, reminding each other of our creator. We're not just reminding ourselves, we're reminding one another of how good this God is. Singing is a powerful tool for those reasons. It helps us to focus on God. And it's no wonder then that it's divisive. The enemy has a stake in causing music to be a problem for us. 
doesn't he? He would love nothing more than to divide, to divide Christians over the one thing that will bring them together in worshipping the Lord. It's no wonder it's divisive. In fact, today when we have more choice than we've ever had with music, you've got Spotify and you've got all these streaming services that allow you to pick any music genre you like and there are so many more. I mean, when I was a kid, you could say, I like all types of music. I like both country and western. <laughs> but now you can't say that. There's so many genres. Um, they're you know, divided up into all these tiny little niche um, mini-genres, sub-genres. The, the range of taste is unbelievable. And if I took a vote or if I took a survey of everybody in this room, I would get a, a separate, a different answer from every one of you about what your favourite music is, what you like and what you don't like. You have a unique profile in what you like about music. And that means that the person choosing the songs for church cannot possibly please everyone. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, I say, that, I say that with a little bit of passion because I have been the music leader in churches and I know what it's like to try and pick songs and to try and please everybody. It cannot be done. It cannot be done. So does that leave us with a big problem or not? No, it doesn't. It means we need to adjust our expectations a little bit. Having problems over music really only happens when you allow music to, when music loses its proper place. Too often we allow our preferences for music to be the more important thing, more important than our relationship with one another. And that is really why we're here. We're not here for the music. The music is just a tool. It's not the reason we come to church. It's a tool. It's no different than the building we meet in. The building is not the end in itself either. It's just it's a tool to help us meet together. The music is no different. It's a tool to help us find our way to God and focus on God and realign ourselves with God. So let's not allow the music to lose its proper place because if we do, you've got the tail wagging the dog. It becomes something that we worship, in fact, the wrong thing. And we don't want that. You end up with nothing but problems. So let me ask you, have you allowed the music at church to become an end in itself? Uh, do you find yourself getting irritated because the songs are too fast or too slow or too loud or too soft or too old or too new? I bet I ticked a box with all of you at some point there. Let's remember why we're singing at all to be reminded together of the God that we serve and to be engaged enough to respond. If the music isn't to your taste, sing it anyway. And if, or, or stop singing and listen to the words and agree with them. Let the music serve you rather, and, and use that to serve your brothers and sisters when you meet together because that's what God gave us the music for. So we've looked at the why. We praise God because he deserves it and because we need it. We looked at the how. God's encouraged us to use music as one powerful way to uh, bring him worship and praise. Now, and what, now the who. Who exactly is the psalmist talking to here? First of all, I mean, most obviously he's talking to Israel. He's talking to the nation of Israel because it was their, their hymn book, their psalm book. Um, and it was their history that he was, he was hinting back to about how God had won salvation for himself with his, with his mighty arm. But there's a sudden change of direction in verse 3. Verse 3 and 4, let me read those. He has remembered his love and faithfulness to Israel. Okay, we get that. 
And then bang, suddenly, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song. Sudden change of direction. I'm not just talking about Israel anymore, he says. One minute it's Israel and the next minute it's the whole world he's focusing on. Um, when I was reading this and thinking it through, I was kind of picturing going to a Starstruck concert. Who's, who's ever been to a Starstruck? Okay, a few of us have. You've, you've got the arena there, you've got the stage, you've got the floor there where the kids come out and dance and do all their things. And they've been working for months and months and months, rehearsing and practicing and learning their songs and getting it all right. And the parents have done none of that. They've, maybe they've shipped all the kids to the practices and back, but they haven't actually participated. They don't know the, what the program is. They come and watch. And they observe, they're observers, basically, from the outside. Um, and I kind of feel like the kids that, are, that have done the rehearsal are a little bit like Israel, who have been through all the history. They forgot their experience of God. They know how he works. They know what it's all about. And the, all the parents watching the, watching the show are like the rest of the world, the Gentiles, us, who don't know this God, don't know what he's on about, but we're coming to observe. You know, it's all been done in public, all this rescue of Israel from, from um, Egypt and everything was public. It wasn't hidden in a corner. And they've watched it from the outside. And it's almost like the conductor of the choir suddenly turns around to the audience and says, now it's your turn. Love it. Wow. Join in. Yeah. And the rest of the psalm includes the whole human race and the whole of creation. Everything that exists, praise God, worship God, respond to God, admire God, point to God. The psalmist is saying what God has been saying all along. Everyone. This is for everyone. I love the verse that Lyndall shared before. It was from Isaiah somewhere. I didn't pay attention to the reference. But um, how God honours the Gentiles who turn to him. That's probably not the right words either, but that was the gist. God honours the Gentiles who turn to him. God has been on about honoring, has been on about inviting the Gentiles all the time. This psalm is a psalm of invitation to the whole world. And God is saying, or the psalmist is saying, like the conductor, he's saying to the rest of the world, take a good look at this God. I know you've got your gods out there that you worship and you follow, but take a look at this God. Have a look at what he's done. And they'd be thinking, why would I swap my gods for this God? Why would I stop worshipping my career or my car or my house or my friends or my online profile or whatever it is that I pour myself out to. Why would I swap any of that for this God that I don't really know? And he gives them two reasons. First, he's a righteous judge. Verse 2 and verse 9. Verse 2 says, he has revealed his righteousness. And verse 9, he says, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. That word righteousness, we hear it all the time and it's just a very old-fashioned word for meaning upright, someone of good, reliable character. And of course, God is the epitome of righteousness. His character is completely righteous. He's completely upright. He's completely reliable. So when he judges the world, when he comes to judge the world, he's going to do it righteously, fairly, with equity. He's even-handed. He won't bend the rules. He is a good judge. Now, that is good news for the world on one level because we cry out for justice. We look at the mess the world is in. We look at the, you know, the human trafficking and the war and the drug addiction and the, 
the messed up families that have come because of people's sin. And we cry for justice. We cry for someone from outside with authority to come and do something and make it right. We want justice and it's a good thing that God is going to come and deal, th- deal with things righteously, fairly. It's also bad news, isn't it? Because I'm not righteous and you're not righteous. And I've done things that have hurt other people. So I'm not so excited that a judge is coming who is righteous and who demands righteousness and who's coming to judge with equity. That leaves us with a problem. But there's a second reason we praise God. The Lord has made his salvation known. The Lord has made his salvation known. Salvation, that's an old-fashioned word again for rescue. God has made his rescue known. So on the first level, you see the Israelites, the Hebrews being rescued out of Egypt and rescued through the desert and rescued across the Jordan and across the Red Sea. He did lots of things to rescue his people. But he has made his salvation known to the whole world. There's an invitation to the whole world here to have something to do with this salvation. It means to step in and save someone from something that they couldn't escape. The whole world has seen God's rescue, God rescue his people. But there's actually a little bit more to it than that because this, the Hebrew word for salvation, does anybody know what it is? Yeshua. Yeshua. Jesus. God gave himself that name when he came into the world. Yeshua. Jesus didn't come just to be a good teacher or a good example. He didn't come just to give us a few moral lessons on how we could get through life a little bit better. He came as Yeshua, as salvation. He was a one-man rescue operation for a whole world full of people that were facing real justice. Real justice. Even-handed justice that doesn't bend the rules. A whole world full of people who had bad news coming. He didn't rescue from a distance. He didn't stay aloof. He stepped into human history. He went into the battle alone to the cross at the cost of his life. And he still came out with a victory. He's a hero. And this psalm says that the Lord made his salvation known. It's not hidden, it's visible, it's available, it's on public display. So on one hand, the whole world is promised even-handed justice. And on the other, the whole world has been offered mercy, a rescue from justice that we don't want to face. How on earth is that possible? It's possible because Jesus faced justice for you. At the cross, Jesus looked like a failed hero. That's how the disciples felt, wasn't it? They felt that crushing disappointment. What happened to our hero? We thought he was the one. But that was the moment he was at his most heroic. Justice has come to the world. Mercy has come, become available to the world. If we come to this even-handed, righteous, rescuing God and admit that we've done the wrong thing, the Bible says he is faithful and just and will forgive us. He's faithful. He will do what he says. He's just. It's right for him to forgive us because the sentence has already been carried out. That's why only God deserves our praise. 
Next time you find yourself worshipping someone or something else, remember why we're called to praise him. Because there is no one else like him. Next time you're bored or annoyed with the music in church, remember why we're called to praise him together. We don't need another hero. We already know the hero who all other heroes point to. He is a rescuing, righteous, even-handed judge who loves us more than we can know. So we praise him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that a simple psalm like this can speak so deeply to us. Thank you that you don't... um, You don't leave us as machines. You do want to engage our emotions. You do want to um, engage all of us in responding to you. Thank you that you are a God who invites the whole world. You are, there are ample reasons for praising you. You are in a class of your own. Help us to remember that next time we lose focus, next time we are distracted by things that just don't last, things that can be taken away. Help us not to waste our worship on things that don't deserve it, but to worship you instead, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.